Welcome, Rick Span, to Stories Lived, Stories Told. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hmm. Thank you. I'm glad, glad to be here. How are you arriving to this conversation today? Uh, well, I'm in Amsterdam right now. It's, um, what is it? Uh, 7 p.m. It's a sunny day. We got somehow a week of sunny days here in Amsterdam, which is only happening normally in high summer and then not even quite often. Um, but well, it's a, it's a nice day and I'm arriving into it by, I had a, a friend here and we were chatting on some things related to CMM and then I had to do some other things related to CMM. So I just thought somehow I'm arriving here in a, a life which is connected with CMM. I, I prepared by just doing the things I normally do, but mostly I try to be unprepared in the spirit of improv. I will share that I am arriving to this conversation from having a very busy past week, lots going on since I'm graduating and so wrapping up a lot of loose ends, but the conversations I have been able to have so far have been the highlight of my weeks. So I've definitely wow. been looking forward to this for this week because these conversations are really meaningful and life-giving for me. So I appreciate you being a part of this. Thank you. So to start, can you tell us the story of your work and your passion kind of over time, how that's developed, where you started, where you are now? Yeah, I think at a certain moment, I discovered that it's constantly evolving and developing whatever I do. I started out as studying German literature and trying to maybe to become a teacher or whatever, but then I moved to musicology. And uh, music in all its different aspects was like uh, opening up everything for me. Life-giving, as you said, is I think a good phrase because it was telling me that it, life is all about being curious all the time and being connected with whatever is happening around in your life. And for me, immediately music was more than just the sound of it. I hear classical music, I hear jazz, I hear pop music, or I listen to the history or the theory of it. It was more like interconnectedness and curiosity and how things at the crossroads of everything, how they develop. So then from that point on, uh, I was curious to explore uh, in my life what would be happening at the crossroads of different fields, starting with art. So I did all kinds of things up to a level uh, uh, that I got bored. Uh, and it was, for instance, in theater, I did uh, theater school, art school. I was a visual artist, worked at the time as that. I do, do that still for a bit. Um, and um, well, teaching music, being a sound engineer and being a dancer and composer and all kinds of things connected with, I found out, improvisation, which is mainly about uh, having a light structure and then playing with whatever emerges. I did that for quite some time and then I found art is interesting, but maybe it would be interesting to see what applied art or applied musicology would mean. So then I got interested in the work of uh, organizations, organizational change, development, meeting some friends uh, who are working in that area. And one of them is uh, Sergei, Sergei van Middendorp, a fellow board member of the CMM uh, Institute. And this again led to new developments, getting to know people from Fielding, Taos Institute, and and so on and so on. So it's evolving constantly. I, I have no clue where I will be next week, but it's more like, well, I'm on a journey and I don't have a roadmap. Uh, I just uh, uh, follow my guts and follow whatever emerges, hopefully contributing in a way to, as we say at CMM, creating better social worlds. Absolutely. Was music a part of your life growing up too? 
Yeah, it was. The music that my parents were listening to was quite different from the music that I discovered later. It was more like a Dutch and German folk music and Schlager music, if you know that. So that's, um, well, beautiful music uh, in a folk way. And uh, when I turned, well, I got into my teen, uh, teens, then I would start to listening to hard rock and Alice Cooper and that yes, kind of yeah. stuff and Deep Purple and Uriah Heap. I like that a lot. And singer-songwriters like Neil Young and uh, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell. And Absolutely. so, and that was again, also the stretch from really being like soft music and romantic and stuff to really hardcore, <laughs> I had banging stuff. So I really got interested in that and also started to play music, play, started to play guitar and uh, started to play in bands where always there was some sort of an improvisational theme to it. Not, not really jazz at the beginning, but more like, well, hard rock bands in these days were like jam rock bands. So we, uh, when they played live, if you had, for instance, the song Child in Time, Deep Purple, on, on the album, it's uh, just uh, uh, not too much improv, but when they played it live, it could last half an hour. Mm. And then for the guitar players and also for the drummer, and uh, there was lots of room to, to jam. So uh, growing up, it was that. But it's more like the love for music was the key thing instead of a certain style. My parents really enjoyed it when they wake up in the morning. They would just turn on the radio and there was some beautiful music that they loved a lot. And they, uh, it helped them through the day in a, in a good way. Early on, did you think you wanted to work in the world of music? Did you know that music would be a part of your work? Well, actually, when I studied German, I quit doing that because I, I wanted to be a German teacher and I had to study at the university first five years to have my first trainee thing mm -hmm. in practice before a group. So I studied five years and then after about 10 minutes doing that work, I found out this is not, <laughs> not my job. Not for you. Not for me. But then luckily I could choose from different programs at the University in Nijmegen here in Holland where I worked to move to another well, field of study, which was musicology. And then at that time I really did it out of passion. I didn't care too much about the job because at that time it was more like you can work at the radio or you can work in archive work, like in a library or stuff like that. And I thought that was both a bit dusty. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was just always sensing whenever I'm ready for something really much and I'm going to play with that. So then I, for the first few years, I turned into a journalist on jazz and pop music. And I wrote some stuff on the history of pop music and different styles and jazz and did interviews with people in the jazz world. So that was just one thing coming from that. And then whenever, whatever happens, it, it's, it's the next uh, train that's passing by. You hop on that train. It was always, always music, but I never planned it ahead. I can see the theme of improvisation already emerging in your story that you're telling, not just improv in terms of music, but life and your path and just continuing to improv and, like you said, jump on the train as it's coming by. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell us about how you first encountered CMM in your work or in your life? Well, that was uh, by meeting Sergei, Sergei Vermittendorp. I did some work here at a business university here in Holland, Nijenrode, and there was a professor 
His name is Paul de Blot. He was a bit of a legend for me. He was teaching business spirituality at a business school, which was an interesting thing. Yeah. He was already 90 years old when I met him. <laughs> and he was still teaching and writing books every year. So it was, uh, wow. he died a few years later. But I had a chat with him. I met him at this uni business university. And at a certain moment, he gave me some little books. He said, oh, maybe you, just, you like this, Rick. And maybe he just gave everything away. And then at a certain moment, he said, oh, don't forget this one. At the last moment when I left his room. And that was a little um, business spirituality magazine. This is, there's something with music in it. And he just gave it to me. And I looked in it and there was a little piece in it of Sergei. I didn't know the guy, Sergei mm -hmm. Milano. And he was talking about how to get in the groove of jazz and combining that with business and IT and technology. So I thought, wow, that's interesting. So then I connected with Sergei and I really liked him immediately. And we are, we are really good friends right now. So we started to chat about things. And then at a certain moment, he said, I'm working for CMM and there's a, there's a conference in Munich of the CMM Institute and something called IFJIC, Institute for Global Integral Competence. I thought, oh, this sounds really interesting. Why don't you join me? Let's do a workshop on improv. And I found, wow, that's a wonderful invitation. So we're in the spirit of improv and trying to do good things for the world, we went to Munich. And then this is again, something emerges from that. It's like there I met some people from Fielding. They were interested. I was invited in to go to Fielding with Sergei as a guest uh, in Santa Barbara at the winter session. And that again made a huge impression, which led to other things. But from the beginning, when I met Sergei, CMM was something that was there. He told me he was a board member. He told me about uh, Barnett, Barnett Pierce. So I was interested in his work, started to read. And then at a certain moment, I went to London. And then uh, I met some other board members of the CMM Institute. And one thing led to another. At a certain moment, I was so interested that I was invited into the stewards, as we say, of the CMM Institute. And I'm trying to, well, add my two cents to our work. Was the CMM Institute already looking at this intersection of CMM and music? Or is that something that you brought to the group? Oh, I don't, I don't know if I brought it to the group. I think that when I got to know more people connected to the CMM Institute, there were already lots of people who worked with music. And for me, music is not only the sounds itself, but it's about how people think and how people interact and how people are kind to each other and listen to each other in a generous way. When I'm teaching my work, it is about what CMM is around, about having cool conversations in a way, being conscious of how you create your reality in your communication, which is for me exactly the same as how good music works. So it was, the spirit was already there. It might not be exactly around music as a term, but it was, if you would use music as an adjective, it mm. would be a music organization, working for muses, working from mm. the artistic working from, um, this is a way I like to talk about music. If there's the word right. muse is in it. And the muse is something inspirational, which is intangible, which is deep and rich, and which is beyond fixed models or, or definitions. You sense into that. So music, a, a music team might be a team that is really inspired and life-giving. So that spirit was always there, I think. You're making me think in new ways, like even saying that music is beyond instruments. And I was going to ask you, how do you define music? But you're saying it is beyond definitions. And so it's interesting to see how you understand it. Do you have any more to say on that? 
Well, let me take a, a little leap to musicological term, the harmony of the spheres. Okay. Which was an old philosophical notion coming from uh, Plato, Aristotle, uh, and later on with some other philosophers, uh, and Kepler and, and Galilei, uh, play, playing with this idea of there is an interconnectedness in the universe, the planets move in certain ways, there's a certain sound, it says something about numbers, mathematics, it's in how we as human beings live in our psyche, how that connects to the outer world, etc, etc, etc. It's been used a lot also in music therapy, about what mm -hmm. kinds of music are helpful to help people. That's a very rich and connected world, and it was used as harmony of the spheres. And how many of the spheres, later on there was a Roman philosopher, Boetius, in the 6th century, and he said something about there are three types of music. And he called it musica mundana, musica humana, and musica instrumentalis. Mundana would be the harmony of the spheres, the interconnectedness of everything, the pattern which connects. Mm -hmm. And humana is how that resonates inside of a human being, that interconnectedness. So if you're a musician, in a way, you already have some connection to how harmonies and melodies and rhythms and tones and resonances and dissonances and noise, how all this, these things are working together in a, in, in a wonderful, life-giving way. Sure. But the third part, musica, in, musica instrumentalis, that is only the part where you can hear it, where mm. you need an instrument to, to voice whatever is inside of you. And that instrument could be a guitar or a saxophone or a drum kit or your own voice or your own rhythms that you make, whatever it is. But that is when you express what is inside of you. So it's not the playing that makes it the music. The music is already existing. One part of that is just playing it out loud. Yes, uh, yes, and building on that, riffing on that, uh, I would say, <laughs> riff, riffing on that, you might also say, when you're in a good conversation, you might also be playing music. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful when you try to listen at a conversation and think, what's the music in here? How does it move? Mm. I say something, you react, I react on that. Is there some silence sometimes? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what does that do? Good music making is working with all these things. So, and it's playful which is about, right. we're not, you don't say I'm working music or I'm working guitar. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> you say I'm playing guitar. Of course not, yeah. I'm playing the guitar. So it is more like a quality, a wonderful quality. Christopher Alexander is, was uh, working from architecture, living architecture, he called that the quality without a name. You cannot express that. And I sense uh, a lot of connection with that. Mm. Sergei was so generous, he's a very generous person to gave me one of his books, The Timeless Way of Building. I got this as a, as a gift and it's really inspirational. It's really about how there's some patterns, some interconnections that have a certain quality that cannot be defined, doesn't have a name, but there's something to it. And how do you tune into that and how do you bring that into our life together or our interconnectedness with nature, with animals, uh, with the wind, with, with everything that is, that is there. No, it's wonderful. You're making me think many, many things, but I want to go back to something you said earlier about the business and spirituality class, which I just have so many questions about. Um, that's a very interesting connection to me. And so I want to know where you see that intersection between music and improv and the business world and the organizations that you work with. Because yeah, like I, you said, it's work. It's the work yeah, world, yeah. but you're, you're not working music, you're playing it. And so what is that intersection? I can go into that, but first I would be curious. You say many things come to mind with you. Could, could you mention one, something from your life, that is, you know, your, your ideas about what's emerging there? 
my very first thought about the business and spirituality class is that is not a class that is offered at my university. I think about culturally the way that we do talk about business and living in a very capitalistic consumerist society. To me, those exist entirely separately to people. I think they should overlap, but I don't see that happening in my society. And so it's exciting to see that there are people going into work and the business world and bringing that lens of CMM or music or spirituality. I think that makes it so much richer. And so that's exciting to me. That's my first thought. But I love the improv and the music and thinking about music, the base of that being muse, because of course those words are related, but I never had thought about it like that. And so I feel like you're giving me a lens to start looking at things in my life differently. The conversation I do have, I've seen, you know, improv jazz or improv comedy shows and think, oh, I could, I I could never do that. That it's crazy to get up there not knowing what you're going to say, but everything is improv. I'm improving all the time in all my conversations and everyone is capable of that. And it is a really beautiful thing when you're looking at it through that lens and seeing it as that and seeing it as a muse and musical. What would you be your idea on like the idea of improv as a way of life? Yeah. That resonates with me because I've always considered myself as someone who likes to have a plan and probably to a fault have experienced that before of not being able to be open to go with the flow. Like if I'm on a train and there's a train passing me, I might miss that opportunity because I might say, well, this is the train I'm on. I can't get off this train, even if the train that's coming towards me is a really good opportunity. And I feel like I've gotten away from that in the past couple of years and learned to appreciate spontaneity or improv or, you know, whatever version on that spectrum of not being so attached to your plan that you can improv and let new things and beautiful things come in. For example, I, over the summer, before I started my senior year, actually applied for a Fulbright grant to go to grad school in Finland. Mm. And I applied for that and I was all in on that plan. And I was selected as a semifinalist. And then a number of different things happened where I said, that's actually not what I need to do right now. I feel very academically burnt out. It's very strange having gone to school during COVID and I would love to go to grad school. I know that for sure. I want to continue to study calm, but I knew that I wouldn't enjoy it right now. And some other opportunities came up like this podcast and the ways that I am going to still be able to travel. And so that to me has been the biggest example in my life of what I see as improv, of being able to switch tracks a little bit and go with the flow and for me, pay attention to in myself what I need. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I was look, looking at the questions you sent me before uh, this session and I looked at them and then I said, I'm not going to look at them anymore because it might get in the way. Mm-hmm. It's like one of the ideas uh, we sometimes use is plan well and hang loose. So, <laughs> That's good. That's good. You, you plan something to have an idea about this. I might need this, this structure to feel at ease about we have something as a starting point. But once you are getting on the way, you never can predict. I, I never met you. <laughs> I can right. have all kind of protocols on how would I do a podcast. I yep. could go to, and when I was young, go to the library, find a book, how to prepare for a podcast and work through that. And then I would be prepared like a very rigid robot right robot here and then i would hope that you would be that person that was in that book as being right, right. 
as being the ideal interviewer. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> and from moment oh, uh, from moment one, I would not notice that you're far better than any ideal <laughs> uh, interviewer. I would say, oh no, she sucks because she doesn't fit into uh -huh. my description of what an ideal. So now I'm lost. This will oh no, and would start to stutter and stuff, uh -huh. you know. And then, but when you start to, as you say, switching tracks, I, I love that. You do that once or twice and ten times, and then you find out. When you let go of the plan, the results are much, much, much more better and original and lively and flowing than when you stick to a script. I appreciate the concept of being authentic in my life and approaching things in a very genuine way. And I think when you have a plan and you're in a kind of rigid space, that keeps you from really being able to be authentic. But the improvisation allows you to show up and meet other people where they're at too. And that's what creates the space for a more authentic interaction. Do you know the word uh, bricolage? Mm -mm. That is a, a word I really love and what it means. It's coming from Claude Levi-Strauss, who was an anthropologist. But it's used as looking around and see whatever you have at hand. Just noticing what whatever is around and what you could use to recombine into something new, or something interesting, which is about improv, about noticing what we have and playing with that rather than having something in your mind mm -hmm. as a plan to execute. So when you're curious and looking around and trying to say, hey, what's that? Hey, hey, that's interesting. And then that connects in a way with something else in my mind. And then that might lead to some sort of an action, which is unpredictable because you don't know what you will find if you go to a new place. And then you play. And so you're constantly open to surprise and to the unexpected. I was going to say expectations. If you do have a plan, then you have some level of expectations. So it's maybe easier to be disappointed. Not that people shouldn't have expectations at all, but having an open mindset allows you to engage with the unexpected and not be weighed down by your expectations. This is a very interesting. I, I shared with you at the beginning of our talk how I got into this conversation. I talked with a friend of mine today on improv and on a concept called ultra stability, which sounds really cool. <laughs> I must say right now that I introduced that word, which is a known word in cybernetics, blah, to my friends Bart and Sergey, and they already know what I'm going to be saying right now when we were drinking old engine oil. <laughs> <laughs> we were in London and there is this cafe, restaurant thing, which is the old railway station. And because it's an old railway station, yeah, they have different types of beer. And <laughs> right. we were very interested in drinking a glass of old engine oil. But what I want to be sharing, your stability means that as a team, as an organization, you are stable and flexible at the same time. You are yeah. constantly moving along with the environment like a drummer would do, a jazz drummer. He's like playing, keeping the band to the beat. But if mm -hmm. there's some improv around it, new stuff emerges from the players and maybe from the audience and then playing with that and changing the rhythm a bit so then you turn into evolution. We call that in, in a, a book I wrote with a friend of mine, uh, Syncopated Leadership, Syncopations. You play with these things as a response to what's happening in the environment. Mm. But then I was talking with my friend about this and then we talked about expectations. And now I have a question for you. I would be really curious. I'm thinking that to be an improviser or to have an improvisational stance toward the world, I think one thing is very, very important at the key of all of this, at the root of all of this, and that is how do you respond to something which is unexpected? 
Mm-hmm. What I found in my work with uh, teaching people in improv, there are people who simply have this an ingrained way of responding to something which is unexpected as, oh no, this is a disruption, this is a disturbance, and a disturbance is not what I need right now, I yeah. have to stick to the plan. And there's a sentence from science, a disturbance is only a disturbance against a fixed notion of stability. I really love that. Yeah, because yeah. a fixed notion of stability means there's only one one sort of stability. But there's also a dynamic, creative, moving type of stability, like a dancer uh, or a, a boxer moving around in a ring or musicians playing together that is stable and at the same time moving along with mm-hmm. what's happening around. And then even in science, in cybernetics, they say this is about engaging, assume it's your word, engaging with the unexpected. Yeah. There's always unexpected stuff that's always there, but moving into it, being interested. And I I think that when someone's saying, oh, something new is happening, something unexpected, oh, no, I don't like that. It's a disruption. It's a disturbance. I don't want want that. But that's why I think you're an improviser. Right. (laughs) Yeah, because you're curious. Something weird is happening. Ah, let's get to the bottom of that. Let's explore. Yes. I love curiosity as a lens to engage with my life from. And that's actually something like uh, my boyfriend is an interpersonal communication major too. So we love talking about this stuff. And he kind of brought that concept of curiosity to me as a frame of just approach everything with curiosity. I think that is what helped me let go of my need for so many plans. And then Barbara brought up curiosity and we got to talk about that. And that was really cool too. But I think it is so true that unexpected interactions are only labeled as bad in our minds when it's our own perspective or how we're entering into the conversation because they talk about in improv if you're doing like a scene with someone I was a theater kid so this is where my mind goes that you have to be ready it's the idea of yes and so you accept the premise and then you add something to it and so that's absolutely a mindset because you could engage with the world from a place of no and just you are not able to accept what someone else is bringing you But if you take that out of a theater context or an improv context and bring it into your life, if you can say yes and to things that are brought to you, then yeah, that's what makes the unexpected not disturbances or not disruptive. And at the same time, adding to that, something that I um, picked up uh, later in, in, in my work is that yes and is a very important one. Sometimes yes, but or no, really not are very important too. And this is coming to an aspect of CMM, which I love, is that it's connected with social values. When you're improvising, then it looks like, well, you just follow the flow. But when you follow the flow, for instance, in in an organization, and you say to people, oh, you can do whatever you want, Mm. then they say, yeah, wow, come on, what's happening here? We need some guidance. Or what's happening a lot is we got to go from centralization to decentralization and back and forth and back and forth because we want to have more space and now we have more freedom and now we want to have more guidance and you turn back into control and command, stuff like that. But it's more like what does connect us and then talking about values might be important. So what is the CMM Institute? What is our tone? What is the sound of the CMM Institute? Uh, what is our compelling story? What is that that keeps us together from a value perspective, a social value perspective? And if we know that, then we can branch out, do our own things, bring them back regularly. The whole system, the whole uh, CMM can start to emerge from that, you know, connect. Uh, and, and one th- sentence that works for me is say no from a deeper yes. Mm, yes. 
So if uh, sometimes I'm, for instance, trying to f- get a job opportunity, then I might say I want to spread the, the news of CMM or my work, whatever it is, to that community. But sometimes I sense this is not the type of community that would be welcoming my work from the value system that I have. And I would have to turn into a, a preacher or a policeman or something. I, I would find so much resistance that I am not the kind of guy that would do well. So then I'm saying no from a deeper yes. I think that is a beautiful nuance to the conversation of yes and, because I don't mean to simplify it down to that, because of course we need to be able to say no. And I think I've been a people pleaser at different points in my life. So it's hard for me to say no, but if I can Mm. reframe it as I'm saying no, so that I can say yes to something else that's going to be more meaningful or fulfilling, then that makes the no's just as important. It, it is, uh, and and when you're on that new planet called yes, then you, there you can say yes and. Right. In my vision of things perspective, it's more like we can say no or yes. We can amplify or we can filter whatever is coming to us. Well, I think saying no makes when you do say yes more meaningful because if you said yes all the time to everything, then you aren't thinking critically about what you're agreeing to. Or moving on with. And so if, you know, someone does ask you to be a part of an organization or to come to some conference um, or enter into a relationship, your yes is more meaningful knowing that you could have said no, or you have said no in the past and you are making that conscious choice. Yeah. And I think the and from the yes and is so important. For instance, if you say something and I would pick it up and I say, I, he- I heard you. And then I continue with my own story, which is like separated from what you just told me. I'm not riffing on you. If I hear you and I build on it and you sense I'm changing a bit right now and I hand it back to you and you riff on that and then we're evolving. Mm-hmm. The CMM, it's, it's called the CMM Institute for Personal and Social Evolution, Yeah, which I really love because it's about personal evolution at the same time, this is the end. And the ampersand, that's the most important part of the whole phrase, I guess. Yeah. Rock, rock and roll, it's about, is it about rock or is it about roll? No, it's about the and. And, yeah. And uh, social evolution, well, what's happening with the world? Where are we evolving into? But how do these things connect in the moment, in the continuous here and now that is moving along with us? And how do we sense into that and try to find what is the next move, turn that is really life-giving, connected with our values, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to sense what is this direction that we are creating right now. And that is a continuous play for me with amplifying, filtering the gestures and responses that we we are experiencing when we're co-creating our worlds. We've already touched on it a little, but can you tell me more about how you are integrating CMM into your work? Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in what CMM is telling me now, saying now to me in my work as what it is as a separate field of study. So I start to read a lot uh, about Barnett's work and there are wonderful heuristics and ideas that you could use, but I'm not going too deep into that from the beginning. I just take the ideas of it and I love the ideas and then I work with my other uh, types of work in social construction, in uh, complexity science, in chaos stuff, in musicology, and and then whatever emerges from CMM and adds some some spice to the gumbo, you know that is what I'm integrating 
so then in that way i'm not a specialist knowing everything it's more like uh, at a certain moment something some sensitivity is emerging that tells me oh now i think i'm ready to read that chapter that brings something to it but more and more i sense that it's really at the heart of my work because it is so wonderfully complex and sophisticated it is Whenever I take a next move in my work and I think, okay, now it's getting quite dense, <laughs> no one understands it anymore, or I can make it lighter right now, I can play with that, then suddenly I see a new connection to something that Barnett wrote, for instance. To give you a practical example, there's a wonderful recording of a session that was hosted by Barnett Pierce and Frank Barrett, who was a big influence uh, on my work, and we work in a way together in a team at Fielding Graduate. It's about conversational jazz. And I really love that session. And at the end of that, Frank is making a remark on design thinking. And I thought, this is interesting because I'm working in design thinking, design academy, stuff like that. Hey, that's an interconnection that I didn't notice yet. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's interesting. So then I'm rereading. Uh, Barnett's work and then a new connection is coming up so there's a whole cathedral emerging here a whole stage concert stage where all these things interconnect and one thing I really love about CMM among all the others is that mystery is at the heart of it. so there's mm -hmm. one way of looking at it it's about coordination and coherence in my words dancing around mystery it's about the art of not not, not knowing and I think I'm uh, faithful to the idea of CMM by not trying to really know what it is. I, I think I also what I learned from musicology, you can think in terms of the theory or you can t think in terms of the myth. And uh, musicology is a, is a science, a type of science that is working more from a mythical perspective. Music theory would mean this is how it is and, mm -hmm. and now you can learn from this and follow the model. But that is more like a reductionist way of working with science. And when I started to study musicology, which was in, I guess, 1985 or 84, then it was like music is a holistic science. And the word holistic at that time in Holland was more like a new age word. Hmm. It's more like, uh, oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's vague. That's sure. not scientific at all. And now gradually holistic uh, connects with systemic, ecosystemic things. We do a lot of fielding. So the holistic, but then our professor, uh, Atty Mulder, a wonderful lady, she, she said, no, it's a myth. It's always true through the ages, through the cultures, because it, you connect ideas from it with your own being. And you can make very personal, unique connections, interconnections on universal truths in a way that keeps your mind open. I really love that. So this is how I'm playing with CMM when it's turning into a theory and I think this is what sure. it is. Then I say, no, it's much too wonderful and beautiful to be turned into what I would consider to be a theory. Yeah, we wouldn't want to limit it to that. To go yeah. back a little bit, can you explain conversational jazz a little more? Well, we are jamming quite a lot <laughs> in this session, which I really like. I think conversation is, is while well, that's in the words of my co-writer, Simon, Simon Martin, we wrote his book, Resounding. Conversation is the key to better business. One of my influences is someone called Patricia Shaw, and she just said, organizing, organization is patterned sound. It's just sounds. You hear voices, you hear suggestions all day in organizational lives, and there are certain patterns to that. Music, one of the ways of talking, thinking about music is patterned sound in time. 
There are patterns, there are sounds, they develop, they go certain ways. Paying attention to that means that you are zooming out a bit and being aware of the sound we co-create every second. And then you might think a bit A, B thinking, but it can be helpful. The standard classical symphony orchestra works with a pre-written score normally, which means everything is already scripted in the score, which would mean if you pay attention to that in your organizational life, that would not work because we are not doing what is scripted. We are improvising all day. So a much more interesting metaphor to use might be jazz. When you think of good jazz and a good setting around it, the wonderful work of Frank Barrett, building on the work of Carl Weick, which is really great, and Sergei working a lot on this too, and Bart, our friends. It's about the idea of we are co-creating our reality from some minimal structures that leave people room to play with new ideas that come to mind. And we embrace errors as, as sources of learning. We jam and hang out because from this serendipity, all kinds of ideas emerge that we would not get when we stay inside of our own group or our own, no, inside of our own walls. And we learn a lot by jamming in a band, by playing in a band, because we provoke each other to do something new instead of uh, repeat the dull routines constantly. So as Frank was saying, Frank Barrett, a jazz band, for instance, it's like, it's like an organization, a temple organization designed for innovation. So then if you connect that to what is a good conversation, then all these things apply. If I'm listening to you, now, now I'm thinking I'm talking too much because I would like to hear your voice again. No, this no, is no, no, keep going. Yeah, but this is uh, what, what a jazz guy, a good jazz guy is having because the guitar player that I was when I was 21, uh -huh. well, what was happening is, yeah, okay, the drummer would want a little solo, but it was most of the time 21 minutes of Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Being this rock player, this long jams, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix type of stuff. But that was more like a bigger, bigger, a bit of that's the, the rock star type of guy. And the rest is also there. Jazz is quite different. That's more like really social. Really? Okay. I hope I didn't talk too much. What's your turn? No, all the things you said are wonderful. And I'm excited to be able to hear your thoughts and pick your brain a little bit. But I, I do appreciate your awareness about that because originally I'm talking about, oh, I'm going to do interviews with people. And then I decided I wanted to be more intentional about that language and call it a conversation rather than an interview for a couple of reasons, because I wanted it to be a conversation. Like you're saying, I want to be able to participate and for it to be a space for us to bounce ideas off of each other. But then also in my mind, an interview is more formal, a little more structured, not leaving room for improv, whereas a conversation is creating a space for us to show up more authentically and have the space for improv and the back and forth, the music. Yeah, and if, uh, that's also something that Frank is uh, sharing in his book, Yes to the Mess, where he's talking about had, having a lesson plan and showing up, I guess it was at Harvard, and then someone asked the question, a student asked the question, and then he thought in his mind, oh, I have to stick to the plan. Oh, come on, our students are curious. This is a curious question. Let's go from here. And then he says, and I really have the same experience, go from there mm -hmm. and let the curiosity lead you. And then you, your conversation will be so much richer than when you follow the script, like, and now I have to do this. And then it might be like professional, you know? Sure. Getting to, to know you a bit in this, in this conversation is, of course, much more interesting than when I would come up with, oh, these are, these are the questions and now this is going to be the answer. Yeah. I think that's boring. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. I'm, I'm going to turn it back to you for a second because mm -hmm. I agree with the idea of not restricting CMM to 
a theory and that being a stagnant sense. So I'm curious how you do think about it. Is it art? Is it music? Is there another way you would describe it? I would say there's art to it. I would say the art of, of CMM and that does justice to the mystery part. Curiosity, genuine curiosity as the highest level of context in CMM language. Different levels of context, which is the highest hierarchy, which is the most, which is a starting point for everything. And that might be curiosity. And curiosity is deeply embedded in how I perceive art, which is about very, very important things that cannot be put into words. There's a, a sentence that I quote sometimes because I love it. It's by Isadora Duncan, who was a, a dancer, a ballet dancer. And she danced something and someone asked her, well, what did you mean when you danced that? And she said, well, if I could explain to you what it what it means, I wouldn't have to dance it. Mm -hmm. The point of dance is in the dancing. The point of music is in the musicking. And it's complexer, richer, more sophisticated than when I would define it down as a typical musicologist in saying these are the five ingredients, follow these five steps, and, and music from a magical way will evolve. It's not that, that simple. It is about sensing into a situation, really trying to do something which is new, challenging yourself to not stick to the image you have of yourself, mm -hmm. evolve, try to, yeah, like Fred Steyer, Steyer also, friend of ours, is saying purposefully, purposefully stumbling, like meandering, stumbling through sure, life, sure. not knowing, you know, and then really not knowing. Instead of, we have a wonderful theory about not knowing, and now I'm going to define what it is. <laughs> no, stop there, and... The only thing that is left is be curious. And then I think I wanted to work with that more. For instance, Barbara McKay, who's uh, also on the board member, she's doing so beautiful work in, uh, in family therapy, the Institute for Family Therapy. When you try to help people out who are having really deep problems in, in their family, then CMM is offering so wonderful tools or every word this is the point. I think it's not even a tool. It's just something that yeah. helps you in at a moment where you think, oh, no, I don't know what to do. Ah, maybe I can try this little thing. I've been using the word tool to mean going beyond a theory. Oh, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's, it's not quite the word I want. There's a word I want more. But it is applicable and it's accessible. And that's part of what my hope is for the podcast is that it's bringing CMM out of theory, academia, land and into people's lives because I do see it as belonging there. And you're helping me to connect the curiosity and the mystery together, which of course go hand in hand, but I hadn't necessarily thought about it like that because if there is no mystery, then there's no need for curiosity. There's nothing to be curious about. Yeah, and it's even, I would say, thinking out loud here, that you put curiosity in it by your stance. If I have this glass here, People on the podcast, I'm holding a glass. It is really true. It is not a lie. <laughs> Can you please say, yes, Abby, that I'm holding a glass here? Yes, Rick is holding a glass. Right, to be sure about <laughs> that. Uh, when I'm looking at this glass, I can look at it as it's a glass. That's it. It's nothing else than a glass. That's reductionist thinking. I might also say, wow, what is this thing? And, oh, I like the shape of it. And this is glass. And I can look through it. And there's water in it. And... It's making some sound and I don't have to spill it on that. And, oh, wow, I like it when I'm turning it a bit and it turns into an oval and now it's round again. 
and it's quite heavy and wow it's a million things right but it's not in the glass all these things it's in my curiosity that i bring mm. to my stance of looking at the glass i like it's all about perspective and the reframing yeah and this is where cmm is connected to social construction this is Ken Gergen, who's a scientist in person, a great guy working in social construction, also showing something and helping you to understand that only as one person already, you can look at everything by asking questions about it. Mm -hmm. what, is, what, what is this thing? It's not one thing. We don't boil it down to one thing. It's, it's a million things when you are curious and then imagine that you're in a conversation. Right. And then CMM might help you to open up any judgments that you might have pre-existing in your mind and help people to open up to what is really happening, really trying to be aware of how we are creating our work together without being detached, but still being engaged in what's happening. There's an art to it. And I think there's an art to it to apply it or to work with it. Yes. I want to know more about, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in your bio on the CMM Institute website. You are an organizational consultant. Is that a title you give to yourself? Yeah, well, sometimes people ask what you do and then I, have a, I don't know. It's every word, every word sucks because it, it's always less and more than you want to say. Mm -hmm. I'm shying away of it from, I'm working as a consultant, but as a specific type of consultant. Right. I want to know more about how, what in the theme of creating better worlds how do you see your work as a consultant doing that? How are you bringing the music and the CMM and the improv and the conversation to organizations through your work? Well, we tried, uh, I, I wrote a book with, with Simon Martin from UK. It's called Resounding, Introducing Alternative Metaphor for Organization Change. The idea of the book is to have some sort of a minimal structure to help organizations being interested in our work. And when I bring that to an organization, I just try to have a different type of conversation opener on, on what organizational consulting might be in the first place. It's about dialogue. It's about sparking a conversation. It's not at all being an expert on the problems you have in an mm. organization. And I'm going to be deep research and I'm going to deliver the data and come up with a strategic plan. And I'm going to help you to get people involved and buy in <laughs> to the change. That's the opposite of it. It is zooming in, zooming out, asking questions. It's about when you move into something around change, be really interested from a deep empathetic design type of thinking. Mm -hmm. What is happening down there? And if we want to do something around change, well, how do you really connect to the stories? What is hidden there? What, is, what are the deep connections? Shall we dig a bit, dig deeper, see what is happening there, and then connect it to your values and really code, construct and co-design it with the people. But sometimes when you do that, people say, and then I would have to say no from a deeper yes, uh, we expect you to come up with an analysis and you're an, an expert on what would be, and I'm, I'm saying I'm not an expert on anything. You are the expert on your work. Right. And if, and if you want someone who does it, that job, there are people around who can do that, but I can't. So it's more like using music. What is a melody? What is harmony? What is, what is the sound of your organization? What are the rhythms in your team? Is there syncopation in it? Ultra-stability, as an example, I explain that by a jazz drummer. And if you explain it with theory, 
then it's already theoretical from cybernetics and people are thinking, oh, this has got nothing to do with our work. But if you tell them, well, what, what, what kind of team are you? Are, are you a funk band or are you a marching band or are you a jazz band? And only asking that question, listening to some sound bites, leads to a conversation that might help people sense into a different perspective of what they're doing, sensing into their patterns, helping them to sense and hear their rhythms, their patterns, and helping them to understand that change is often about realizing what you're already doing and connecting these ideas with each other so something emerges that is much more lifelike than what traditionally would be resulting from the task of a traditional consultant. I think of CMM as being based around storytelling, obviously. Where do you see storytelling come into your organizational work for you? Is it about helping them change the story that they're telling? I think one of the most important things I noticed in me studying CMM is this story about different types, uh, monocultural, ethnocentric, modernistic, and cosmopolitan communication, different dimensions of communication. Uh And a monocultural would mean there's just one, one reality, one truth. And ethnocentric would mean there are different realities and truths, and mine is better. And modernistic would mean there are different dimensions and truths and realities, and the newer one is better. And then we got cosmopolitan communication, which is what we are talking about, which is really being interested in reframing by listening to someone else, uh, not thinking that my horizon is the only one, and uh, being really interested in what an other culture is from the inside out, what is happening inside of Abbey. What do you think? Really being interested in that and challenging your own truth and replacing it by wisdom, which says it is just my knowledge up to now because I haven't met you. But one thing that I noticed for myself, what's the difference between these first three parts and the last one might be framed with cosmopolitan communication. You don't have an overarching narrative up front. And the idea of having a narrative up front about who you are, how to have, you have to define yourself, which is brought into our culture and our Western culture with all kinds of scientific stuff and Descartes and metaphor stuff. But when you don't have an overarching narrative up front that would absorb everything that's different, <laughs> it has to fit in, fit in my way of thinking, and then I can move on. But the idea is there's nothing that something can fit in. It is just a reality, a truth, a story in its own right. And I can open up to that. And I'm very curious about what might emerge from the interaction between these narratives. And then a new narrative might emerge. This is the words of Barnett from this conversational jazz session. It's about the co-creation of, a, of an emergent narrative. So it's, for me, not... I have a new narrative, but I'm interested in the narrative that is emerging from our engaging in co-creating something, but that can only be co-created when I don't have to fit it in something that I already carry. I can't help to come up with something I like. Do you know Procrustes? Procrustes was a, this is the story of the Procrustean bad which is, I like myths, I told you. Procrustes was an innkeeper in uh, ancient Greece, Greece uh, and this guy had a, had a bad, and his marketing campaign was around, everyone fits in my bad. Say the bad was in, in meters, one meter 70, 
But the trick was when someone was coming in who was one meter sixty three, that person was stretched <laughs> until he was one meter seventy. And when someone was coming in who was one meter eighty, he just chopped his feet off <laughs> ten centimeters till he fit in. That's also an ancient Greek myth, which Procrustean bad for me means you have some fixed reality idea about anything, and then when novelty, something new, the world, mm. other people, ideas come in, and you chop them into or stretch them in such a way that they fit into what you know, well. That is an interesting thing to do, maybe, if you uh, want to have a good job as an innkeeper. But for me, getting into social innovation, novelty, creating a better social world would mean don't bring something that something new has to fit in. That's something that I resonate with, but have put different words to the way I think about it is the concept of should, of you should want this, you should do this, that. Oh, wonderful. That's where the, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but where the the lack of meaning or truth, maybe a little T truth, whatever your truth is, the, the kind of life that you want to live or the kind of person you want to be, it's in that area between what you sh- you think you should be doing and what you know to be true for yourself. Whereas maybe I think of this because my whole life has been school. And so it's been very achievement focused so far. And so I look forward to getting away from that in a sense, where it's not all about the grades or the scholarships or the awards, because it's I should strive for these things. But I also want to value things like rest and play and spirituality. And so there's that dissonance between all the things that we think we should do, or should be look a certain way or act a certain way. But that's not what is true to us. And so that's how I see it similar to what you're saying. Yeah, wonderful. It's a wonderful connection. Is that hard for you? I think about it in terms of feminism and being raised as a woman and seeing a lot of gendered lines as far as what I should be as a woman, how I should act, how I should look. And Mm -hmm. so that's something that I struggle with because, again, like you're saying, it's the CMM Institute for Personal and Social Evolution. And I feel like I do a lot of work to find that personal evolution and I have a curiosity about things and I desire to be self-aware and to learn. And I recognize that 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 can't be it. It's not just that I need to change how I'm thinking and I just need to get over it or overcome whatever barriers it's that there are deep societal norms that contribute to the way women are viewed in society and the roles that traditionally we have been limited to, at least in the United States, I see that. It makes me sad in a way that our society is, to me, society is the should. And we, as a whole, in the United States, at least, we're not very improvisational. Mm. We're more focused on the plan and the rigid structures. And anything that's outside of that is a threat. And it's not welcome and it's not normal, you know, whatever that is. And so I don't think there's a space, as large of a space, to welcome innovation in that way, to see things differently and to say yes and. I think it's a lot of no, which again, no's can be good, but I think it's in a stifling way. And I think that's, I don't like, you know, the idea of many of these things being women's issues because I think it it hurts everybody when like women are limited, men are limited, anyone who identifies as any gender, I think it's harmful for everyone because it's a limiting thing to everybody. And that's what the whole 
improv concept is about from my perspective that it's unlimited it could be anything and it's welcoming every, everyone not at excluding anyone based on whatever mm -hmm. it's welcoming people to play along and to share your story and also to think out loud and maybe come up with some different things di difficult things like uh, some trauma might emerge you might see each other as human beings without fitting into whatever kind of way we think we should present ourselves mm -hmm. as a uh, as as a person that is labeled in a certain way and another thread um here is the idea in cmm of unwanted repetitive patterns so there might be patterns in society that are have grown from from how patterns grow and how they turn into patterns of behavior which make up a culture and thinking in in those terms might be helpful to understand that certain smart disruptions of these patterns in, on a rhythmic level that's more like a resounding thing if, if you pay attention to what is happening with these small disruptions then they really can make a difference because they ripple out in complex systems and they make a difference really so what i love about cmm is that the work that is in there what we do with cosmo kids helping people in the future trying to understand something that is much closer to their hearts than grown-ups have grown up in different parts of the world might be helpful to balance it out a bit and i'm hopeful around that because there are so many people that we talk with in our work not only cmm but also the taos institute uh, cmm or my work here in holland that are really craving for some sophistication and some nuance i see cosmo kids as being such a great initiative because it's not that it's entirely hopeless for people who aren't children but it is probably easier to bring that curiosity and that mystery and that perspective of improv in from childhood and to give children the lens of that to be able from the start to grow up in that and help them to see the world in that way than people who didn't have that weren't given that gift of that perspective that do feel like they have to be stuck in the rigid ways and then rethinking that's a very challenging thing to do i think so i value that the work of cosmo kids in that way one of the projects that I'm engaging in is to write another book for the CMMI Press, building on something I conceived earlier, but I'm now moving into making it into, turning it into a children's book. I'm not quite sure about that because it might not be necessary at all because it's already there in the Cosmo Kids. Uh, that's so wonderful. But it's more like not writing another academic book that might help academics to better understand the abstract ideas about how wonderful CMM is, but turning it into something even more practical than resounding and addressing it, writing it in such a simple way that children might like it and also other people might be interested in it and trying to get the complexity of it, trying to get the sophistication, the nuance in a very simple type of language I'm playing with the idea, but I think saying it right now, it's not necessary because we already have that. <laughs> well, I think there is a lot of value to that. So I think there definitely could be a place for that because being the communication mind that I am, I, I, sir, I love articulating concepts and the nuances and the complexities in the best way that I can and using the big words. But like you were saying earlier, the dancing, the dancer not having to put to words what she's meaning in her dance because that's yeah, not the yeah, point yeah. of it so that's definitely a challenge for me because i just love the words so much and i want to be able to share those ideas with people and so there's a place for both i think of the 
there's some good big words out there that help us understand that nuance, but there's also not that we're dumbing it down by any means, but making it simple and making it accessible to people, to children, to whoever. It's helpful to help, help people understand, to hear the music in the, in the words, like mm -hmm. Gregory Bateson said, let's stamp out all the nouns, like, because you say, oh, music or innovation or communication, that's a thing, but yeah, well, that's not happening in, uh, in, in real life. It's all emotion, dynamic patterns, stuff like that. So if I say something and you're curious about what I mean, then, then it's all cool. But if I say something and you say, oh, I don't agree, because you think that you already know what I'm talking about, but I'm just reaching out right. with a word to as a next to turn to take a next turn. And that is a very key point to as a conversation opener. Let's not fight use use words as ways to fight each other, but just as yeah. well, little little uh, sounds <laughs> that that frame a little bit what I'm trying to talk about. And if you're curious and I'm curious and we have some sort of an understanding about what kind of social world we want to be creating with this also in this conversation, mm -hmm. well, that might be uh, might be a cool thing to do. I, I think, I hope this is a podcast for uh, people who might be uh, hopefully listening to that. And I hope they will get curious about what this thing means uh, the, or this, this thing called CMM, which isn't a thing. Yeah, let me share this, this little story from when I was teaching guitar. I'm a guitar teacher for quite some time. And then at a certain moment, I asked myself, which, which, guitar, which guitar students are learning? the best are turning into good players and then I, I simply noticed that for instance I got a guitar student he wanted to play the blues and I said okay we could do this this is a starting point and I offered something that was a bit of a challenge not too much and then uh, there were say three types of students one came back after two weeks and he said oh I didn't have time I didn't take my guitar out of the out of the case and what what again did we do last time and then I do the same thing which is cool everyone's learning in his own his or her own way the other one would be saying, yeah, I trained very hard and here it is. And it would be very good or you could work on that. And the third one would come in and would say, man, uh, this is when we already had internet. <laughs> man, this was great because I listened to the music that you suggested. I was researching it and I found this other guitar player and I listened to that and I found this one song on this album and I tried to play it and here it is. And that kind of pupil learns the best hmm. someone who says wow i just take whatever he, he's giving to me i make it my own and i start to i'm going to do some field work here oh, i'm, yeah. I'm yeah. interesting in what's happening over there i want to dive into that world and now i find something which is way cooler than what that guy suggested so this is what is happening all the time so if people are listening to this podcast if you really want to learn about cmm we, we have this weird thing called internet Mm -hmm. And if you start Googling around and just try to be curious again, and, and it's all about networks and values. what's happening there? Oh, hey, this is, and then maybe in two weeks, you're doing something totally different from, from CMM. You're training dolphins in, uh, in Hawaii, whatever it is, but you got there through doing that. Take it and make it yours and then give it to someone and bring it on, bring it, bring it further. My final question is for you is what is it that you, Rick's fan, are trying to create in your social world? <laughs> uh, helpful noise. Tell me more. Noise means things you cannot define, things you cannot be. Helping people to understand that our lives 
and I hope this doesn't seem too, doesn't sound too generalized, but we all have to struggle in our lives with things that we cannot plan. There's so much. Whenever you don't get it, nothing will help that you already know. Not even CMM or jazz or resounding or whatever. What helps is finding friends. People that help you to understand that nothing can help uh, navigate the complexity of our lives and that you get lost and that you get lonely. It's just happening when you're just a human being. And then having different friends from different countries, from different ages, just open up to the people around you because that's what a real, uh, real help and a real wisdom is.